0: tonight to the book of Revelation. We've made our way to the 15th and the 16th chapters. That's where we'll focus our attention tonight, but I want to actually begin reading back in chapter 14, verse 14, so that the context might be clear in our minds, so that you might remember where we are in the scheme of things. So begin with me in chapter 14, verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, A white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Father, we come to this book again. We think about the return of your son and the redemption of your people and the wrath that is to come, and these are weighty subjects. God, far Um, more weighty than we know, far more weighty than we are sometimes prepared to handle. So God, tonight, with all the other things uh, in our minds, I pray that you would help us uh, to feel, to sense the weight of this passage, these truths in chapter 14 and in the two, two chapters to follow. God, help us to sense what you are saying, to, to understand and to act accordingly. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not a big um, user of the latest technology. Some of you know that. I have a dumb phone, not a smartphone. I'm not on Twitter and Gasp. I'm not even on Facebook. Um, But there's one piece of modern technology that I do employ and that I do enjoy, namely Google Reader. Some of you perhaps use that as well. Uh, It's really neat. I tell it what newspapers I want to read, and they deliver them to my fingertips every day as new articles pop up. All the latest headlines come right to my homepage. Uh, And one of the really helpful things about that format besides the fact that the information just comes to me, is that there are always two levels of information. Um, First, if I just allow my cursor to hover over the particular headline, it will give me a brief blurb, a sentence or two, encapsulating the story. And if the blurb is interesting enough and I want to read on, then I can click the headline and it will open for me the full story. Two layers of information are there, a, a brief blurb, And then a more detailed full account and i find those two kinds of layers not only in google reader um, but also in the transition from revelation 14 to revelation chapters 15 and 16. the last few verses of chapter 14 it seems to me were a kind of blurb they were an important and an exciting blurb but still the last few verses of chapter 14 are just a brief summary of Christ's return and the events connected with it. When he returns, he will harvest his people like wheat, verses 14 through 17, and he will throw his enemies into the winepress of God's wrath, verses 18 through 20. Those, as I just prayed, are weighty things, but they're talked about in very brief format there. But they're marvelous things to know, are they not? Christ is coming he will redeem, he will rescue his people, and he will bring God's judgment upon the earth. And yet I say again, the description of those events here is really quite brief. But tonight, as we read on into chapters 15 and 16, it seems to me that we find a fuller account of what we've read in brief in chapter 14. I think that's what we're looking at tonight, a fuller account of Christ's return and the particular things attached to it. In fact, when we read further in a moment, you'll see that we'll read tonight about the same events with which we concluded last week, the same events we just read in chapter 14. God's Son comes back to this world, and first God redeems Christ, redeems his people. He scoops them up like wheat out of the field, and he brings them to be always with the Lord. And when he comes, secondly, he also comes bringing God's final wrath with him, the final destruction of planet earth, the casting of the grapes into the wine press. Tonight, I say, we're going to see those same events that we just read in chapter 14, described in 15 and 16, but in far greater detail. God's redemption of his people out of the world, and God's wrath upon sinners left in it. So last week we hovered over the blurb, over the brief summary at the end of chapter 14. Tonight we click on the fuller story in chapters 15 and 16. And they really all go together, and so I'd like to read it all to you at once. Uh, It's 29 verses, but I think you'll see that they all need to be read in one setting. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, And the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chest with golden sashes." Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat And they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out... His bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief, blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called har Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely Severe. Now, as I just said, as in the end of chapter 14, so in these two chapters we t- see two things. We see the redeemed of God having been scooped, rescued out of the world in chapter 15. And then in both of these chapters, but particularly in chapter 16, we see the wrath of God poured out on those who remain on the earth. And those two topics really just form the two halves of the sermon tonight. It's really simple. We're going to think of the redeemed of God and we're going to think of the wrath of God. So first of all, think with me again about the redeemed of God. These who we read last week were scooped up and caught up together with Jesus in the clouds, reaped from the earth like wheat. Tonight we see them again primarily in chapter 15, verses 2 through 4. And we see them tonight standing on a sea of glass with harps in their hands, singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. This is the situation of God's people in those moments immediately following their being caught up in the air, in those moments when planet Earth is coming apart at the seams. God's people are safe, and God's people are singing. And I want you to think about both of those facts. First of all, note well that the redeemed of God here are safe. Hell seems to be breaking loose beneath their feet, doesn't it? They're standing on this pavement of glass in heaven, and beneath them everything is coming apart. These seven angels stand poised in chapter 15, verse 1, with seven plagues in their hands. And those plagues in those golden bowls are eventually poured out and the waters of the world are upheaved. The sky is raining fire and hailstones. Men and women are gnawing their tongues and blaspheming God because of the pain that they're in. A great ocean of men is gathering in chapter 16 for this final battle on planet Earth. Everything is going haywire, but look here at the people of God. They are not tossed by these waves of tumult, are they? No, they're standing Verse 2, on a sea of glass. Yes, we're told the glass is mixed with fire, perhaps symbolizing God's judgment and his holiness. But these redeemed aren't touched by the fire. They are safe. Of course, as we look back on the book of Revelation, we know it wasn't quite always this way for these people, was it? They weren't always quite safe. We saw in chapter 7... That yes, before the great tribulation came upon the world, the redeemed of God were sealed. They were protected from falling away. They were protected so that their faith was galvanized to withstand all the fiery trials. But they weren't yet taken out of the trials altogether, were they? We've been seeing the redeemed of God living through the great time of tribulation on planet Earth suffering famine with everyone else, living through times of war with everyone else, and moreover, being singled out for persecution unlike everyone else. They haven't quite been safe, though they have been sealed and protected. But when the tribulation gives way now to God's final fiery destruction of the planet, when God's wrath is mixed in its full strength— When his last plagues are being poured out here in chapters 15 and 16, in that day, the redeemed of God will have been plucked up from the fray and they'll be safe. Isn't that good to know? In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said famously. And if you live long enough, if you live into these chapters 8 and 9 and following in the book of Revelation, you will have great, great trouble. There are horrible woes that take place in the great tribulation, which are sobering and are shuddering if we take them seriously. In this world, you'll have trouble, and some of God's people will have great trouble, great tribulation. But if you are really one of his people, if you're one of the sealed of God, if you can sing the song of the Lamb, if you belong to Jesus, you may live through Revelation 8, 9, and 10, and 11, and so on, but you won't live through Revelation 16, at least not on the earth. Because while the world is being upheaved here like the waters of a tsunami, you and I who belong to Jesus will be standing on a sea of glass. That's the first thing to say about the redeemed of God in chapter 15. They are safe. But notice also, as I said, that they are singing. In verse 3, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. They are singing. Now, you may say, well, it's obvious that the saints in heaven are singing. That's what saints in heaven do, right? They sit on clouds. They have harps in their hands, just like here, and they sing. That's what heaven's all about, right? So we shouldn't be surprised that they're singing. But I want you to remember that these particular saints that we're looking at were just pulled out of the world and that the world they were pulled out of was splitting apart like an open grave. They are singing in the midst of utter chaos that has gone on beneath and behind them. And yet, here's what I find so helpful. We don't find these saints here having been plucked up out of the world and seeing everything crumble around them. We don't find them crying in their sleeves, do we? We don't find them crying over the loss of their homes or the destruction of their beautiful gardens. We don't find them so sad that they're having to leave behind their nest eggs. We don't find them like Lot's wife here, do we? Remember Lot's wife? Jesus said, remember her. What should we remember about her? What we should remember is that when she was being plucked up from destruction, when she was being plucked out of the fires of Sodom and Gomorrah, she looked back longingly evidently at what she was leaving behind. She didn't want to go. She couldn't bear the thought of leaving all her stuff. But not these people. As the world burns up behind them, these saints aren't weeping. They're singing. They can't do anything but praise the Lord. That's how good it is, how good it must be to be in His presence. Everything else that we will leave behind to enter into His presence pales in comparison to being with Him. That's why they're singing. The redeemed of the Lord are singing. And notice what they're singing. First of all, we're told that they sang the song of Moses. The song of Moses. Was Moses a singer? Well, you may remember that in Exodus 15 he was. In that chapter, when God had led the people across the Red Sea on dry ground, and then when Pharaoh and his riders had entered into that sea and been dashed on the rocks in the midst of it, Moses, in Exodus 15, lifted up his voice in song, praising God for delivering his people and praising God for overthrowing their enemies as well. Moses was a singer. And here we're told that those saints who are transported to heaven at the end of time are singing the song of Moses. Now, the idea is not that they are singing verbatim what Moses sang in Exodus 15. In fact, if you compare what they sing here in verses 3 and 4 with what he sings there, you'll see that they didn't sing his exact lyrics. And yet we're told they sang the song of Moses. And I think what John means is not that they sang the exact lyrics that Moses wrote, but that they sang about the same sort of things that Moses sang about. They experienced the same sort of deliverance that Moses and the people of Israel experienced by the same exact God, and they sang just like Moses sang when he came across the sea. The book of Revelation, in many ways, mirrors the book of Exodus. And here we see the pattern in classic form. God's people are finally redeemed out of their captivity. They are finally rescued from among their foes. They are finally brought across the sea to a place of safety. And when they get there, they sing. And as they look back across the sea at the other side, they see their enemies being overthrown in the flood of God's judgment. Is that Exodus or is that Revelation? Is that the history of Israel or is that the story of the church? It's both, isn't it? The same thing that we see here happened in the book of Exodus. And that's why John says that they sang the song of Moses. But because they sang it at the end of time, they will sing it at the end of time in the age of Christ coming. We're also told that the song of Moses is alternately called the Song of the Lamb. I think he sang this, they sang the same song, and it just has two different names. The Song of Moses, but now they can call it the Song of the Lamb because what Moses did in the Old Testament, bringing the people across the sea into safety, Christ will do at the end of the age. What Moses did temporarily leading the people into the land of promise, Christ will do eternally as he brings us to the new heavens and the new earth. Christ, like Moses, will return someday. Just like Moses was gone for 40 years from Egypt, and then he came back commanding God's enemies to let his people go, so Christ, who has been gone from this Egypt, will return, and he will bring his people out of slavery. And he'll lead us across the sea into a land flowing with milk and honey while our enemies drown in our wake. And when we get there, we will sing. We will sing of God's deliverance, and we will sing, as Moses and the children of Israel did, of God's justice upon his enemies. We will sing, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Just and true are your ways, they say. You were just and true to redeem your people. You were just and true to overthrow your enemies. That's what Moses sang about. That's what we will sing about in that great day. And when we sing like Moses sang we will realize that the song of Moses is more properly the song of the Lamb. We'll remember that Moses wasn't the greatest deliverer in the Bible. And we will sing his song with a new name, the song of the Lamb, the song of Jesus. He's the great deliverer, isn't he? He's the great lawgiver of God's people. He's the great prophet that Moses said would come. And he is coming soon to take us out of our Egypt into our promised land. It's an amazing thing. And when we get there, we will sing. So, very briefly, very simply, that's the first half of John's vision. He sees the redeemed of God. He sees them safe. While the world crumbles around them, he sees them singing the song of the Lamb in the courts of heaven. But Christ's return will not only be uh, with reference to the redeemed of God, but Christ's return will also unleash the wrath of God. We read about it last week in this picture form, the grapes being reaped from the earth and thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. And here tonight we see John describing for us in more detail what that means. These two chapters, 15 and 16, describe for us the final world-ending wrath of God. The plagues that are described here are not, it seems to me, just a continuation of the great tribulation that we've seen before. You'll notice tonight, or perhaps you noticed already, the heat in the furnace in chapters 15 and 16 is turned up seven times hotter than we've seen it yet. The plagues that are outpoured in chapter 16 cause the prior plagues that we've read about to pale in comparison these seven plagues are verse 151 the last because in them the wrath of god is finished so we finally are reaching what we commonly call the end of the world these chapters from beginning to end these chapters uh, describing the final judgment, the final ungluing of planet Earth from fifteen one, down through sixteen and going forward, as well. And it all seems just. Just notice, it all seems to happen very rapidly. Remember that the Great Tribulation is variously described as forty-two months, twelve hundred and sixty days, a time, times, and half a time, all three and a half. Years, Whether that's an exact time or just a rough time period, we're not sure. But the tribulation is consistently described as a a somewhat long period of time. Not long, long, but not just brief either. But this final period of God's wrath seems to take place much more quickly. The chapters we read tonight seem to happen almost all at once. The commentator easily points out, uh, for instance, that Since the waters of the earth are destroyed in verses 3 and 4, both the salt waters and the fresh waters, these final judgments can't last for more than a few days. If the waters of the world really are destroyed, then people can't live for more than a few days. Perhaps just a single day. In fact, you remember that the Old Testament frequently refers to God's returning to the world in judgment as the day of the Lord. And perhaps it will take place in a single day. Whatever the case, it's rapid. Whatever the case, the disintegration of planet Earth, the destruction of the ungodly, the overthrow of the oceans, the fleeing away of the islands, the falling of the cities will happen very rapidly indeed. And note also that after a pattern we've come to expect, this final world-ending wrath of God is depicted here in terms of a series of seven We've seen several series of seven, and tonight we see another. Seven bowls full of the wrath of God, we're told, are made ready in chapter 15. And they're put into the hands of seven angels who pour from those seven golden bowls seven plagues, which are the last. Seven bowls of God's wrath upon the earth. And, of course, chapter 16, as we read, describes each of those bowls, each of those plagues. Just look at them briefly with me. Verse 2, the first bowl is tipped, and malignant sores form on all who worship the beast, which evidently is all who are left on the earth. Either you worship the beast or you worship the lamb. And so those who are left on the earth are covered with these sores. You just picture the world with several billion jobs on it think in your mind what it was like for him to be covered from head to foot with boils and here it is breaking out upon the whole world verse three the second angel poured out his bowls and the salt waters of the earth are destroyed the seas verse four the third angel pours out his bowl and the fresh waters of the earth are ruined verse eight the fourth bowl is poured out and there is this fierce, unbearable, seemingly perhaps deadly heat that comes from the sun and burns people severely. Verse 10, the fifth bowl is poured out, and there's darkness. Darkness like we read about in the book of Exodus, perhaps darkness that could be felt, and great pain as well because of the sores on the people and because of the scorching of the sun, such that the people gnaw their tongues. They're in such pain. Then in verses 12 through 14, a great army is gathered for a great and final battle on planet Earth. And then the seventh bowl is upturned in verses 18 through 21, and we read this. There were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be on the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. Verse 20, every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Verse 21, huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. So these are the seven plagues which are the last these are God's instruments for dissolving the created order for pouring out his judgments on sinful humanity this is the wrath of God in full display on the created order and I want you just as we look at the wrath of God to notice five things concerning it in these chapters five things to say about God's wrath and then we're finished first very simply very obviously I hope the wrath of God is real The wrath of God is real. Revelation 16 is not just uh, a fable, a parable designed to teach us spiritual truth that will keep us on the straight and narrow. It is designed to teach us spiritual truth and keep us on the straight and narrow. But the reason it does is because it's real. These things will really happen. This is not a fable any more than what Revelation says about heaven is a fable. Or a fairy tale. Either we accept all the scriptures as inspired by God and completely realistic, or we question everything. So I know that there are people who would scoff at the idea of the end of the world and so on. We like it in our movies, but people don't actually live or think that it's going to happen, but it's real. And I reiterate that. These things will happen. And I doubt many of us would argue otherwise, at least theoretically. Surely, none of us would in conversation deny the reality of the end of the world but practically it's possible that we could live as though we don't actually believe in the end of the world practically it's possible that we could live as though you know the world it's going to keep going on like it is it's going to keep getting better science and technology are going to carry us into a golden age and and to put all of our hope in the things that we can see Practically, it's possible for us to get so caught up in the here and now and in the stuff of earth, in other words, that we forget that all of these things that are so appealing to us will soon be plucked up like weeds in the garden and cast into the fire. And so I just remind you, this is real. Peter says that the world will be engulfed in flames and what sort of people ought you to be considering that all these things will be destroyed in this way? Are you caught up? Anybody in the stuff of earth? Anybody tonight sweating and fretting and laboring and toiling for the accumulation of money and things that will soon be destroyed by God's hailstones? Most material things, money, are not bad in and of themselves. In fact, the Bible tells us to treat them as gifts from God. But woe to us if we hold them so tight That, like Lot's wife, we'd almost wish the end of the world away because we so love our stuff. The wrath of God is real, and the stuff of this world is perishing. That's the first thing. Secondly, notice that the wrath of God is not only real, it's relentless. It's relentless. As we read through chapter 16, you may have noticed that the various plagues sounded familiar. You may have even said to yourself, Didn't we read about these same sorts of plagues back in chapters 8 and 9 when these seven trumpets were blowing? And we did. Those chapters also spoke of plagues on fresh water and salt water, plagues on the sun, a great army gathered for war. The similarities are so striking, in fact, between... The seven trumpets and the seven bowls that many commentators conclude that the plagues of the seven trumpets and the plagues of the seven bowls are just two descriptions of the same thing. But I want you to note well that in chapters 8 and 9, only a third of the waters were struck. And only a third of the sun was plagued and only a third of mankind was killed. But tonight we read in verse 3, chapter 16, every living thing in the sea died. All the fresh waters, verse 4, seem to be affected. And eventually we're going to see that all men, both the small and the great, will be killed in this battle that's portented here in chapter 16. The plagues of the great tribulation that we read about before were remedial. They were limited. They only went so far because they were simply warnings of God's great and final wrath to come. But when that final wrath is poured out, it will no longer be remedial. It will be relentless. It will no longer be a third of the earth or a third of the sea or a third of the sun. But everything in this world will be disintegrated. The full cup of God's anger will be poured out and there will be no place to escape. Let us never read the book of Revelation and think, well, you know, things will probably turn out okay. No, a day is coming when literally everything we see will be gone, incinerated in God's wrath. The wrath of God is real, it is relentless. Thirdly, notice in chapter 16 that the wrath of God is right. It's right. Listen to these startling words beginning in verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Those are shocking words, aren't they? People are being crushed by hailstones. People are lamenting greatly over the pain that they're in. And this angel says they deserve it. Certainly not politically correct words, are they? You can just picture this angel being quoted in the broadcast media in those final days and all sorts of politicians and pundits calling for him to make a public apology for his insensitivity towards all these people. But what he's saying is exactly the right sentiment in that day. When it comes time for God to pour out his judgments, all that we will be able to say to God is, true and righteous are your judgments. Now, we're not there yet, are we? We live in an era of God's redemptive history in which our primary attitude toward even the greatest of sinners is to say with the Apostle Paul, my heart's desire and my prayer for them is for their salvation. That should be our heart. We should be like Abraham when he knew that God was pouring out fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And he pleaded with God, if there's this many people, if there's this many people, if there's this many people, will you not spare the city? So we live in an era of history in which our thought should be, God, stay your hand, show your mercy. But a day is coming where he won't stay his hand, and he won't show his mercy to those on the earth any longer. We also live in an era of God's history where it's not so easy for us to see what is God's judgment and what is not his judgment. It's not so easy to see what God may be working in someone's life for their salvation or what he may be sending as evidence that they are reprobate. And so it's probably not wise for us on most occasions to pontificate on the reasons why an earthquake struck or why so-and-so had a heart attack. But a time is coming when we will know what God's purpose is. And when we will say, I think, with the angel, Righteous are you, O holy one, because you judged. They... Deserve it. A time is coming when God's judgments will be plain. Now, I don't think in heaven that we'll ever lose our humility in this regard. I don't think we will be in heaven and ever not want to say, Oh, God, I deserve that judgment too. I think that will always be in our heart. But somehow, with that humility intact and even perfected in heaven, we will also call God's judgments true and righteous. We'll sing the song of Moses, praising God both for his redeeming his people and for his avenging his enemies as well and we'll say it we'll sing it not because we're vindictive but simply because from the vantage point of heaven it will be clearer than ever that God's judgments God's wrath is right fourthly we need to note well that God's wrath is ready God's wrath is ready to be poured out at any time That's the import of verse 15, where Jesus himself says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. He could come any time. That's what he's saying here. No one knows the day or the hour, he told us in the Gospels, not even the angels in heaven or the Son of Man himself. And so the reality is, it's possible that the angels of chapter 15, verse 1, are in place, even as we speak tonight, bowls in hand, simply waiting for the signal that those bowls be upturned. And so the lesson is simple. We mustn't sleep on these matters. We mustn't go on living as though things will always be the way they are now. Most of us are fairly healthy. We live fairly comfortably, we have what we need, and in many ways, there are genuine improvements being made all across the board in our world, aren't there? We're so thankful for technology and medicine and the advancements that we have. And that comfort may continue for another 500 years, for all we know. That increase of knowledge and technology may increase for 500 more years. Or it may come crashing down tonight. We simply don't know. I'm coming like a thief, Jesus said. And when he comes, remember, he not only will rescue us, but he'll pour out God's wrath on this world. And so we must hold loosely to the things of this world. We must be urgent about eternity. We must be urgent about our own souls and about the souls of others. For behold, I'm coming like a thief, Jesus said. So, I ask you again, as I often do, and as I have several times in this book of Revelation, are you certain that when he comes, you will be safe? And that you will be singing? And I ask you, if there's someone you know who won't be, If Jesus comes back sooner than you think, and do you feel a sense of urgency about that person? You can't save them. You can't beat them over the head with the Bible long enough to make them come to Christ, but do you feel a sense of urgency that makes you pray, that makes you look for opportunities, that makes you weep for their soul? The wrath of God could be poured out any day now. The bowls, for all we know, are ready waiting simply for God's command. And if the bulls are ready, then we must be ready too. So then the wrath of God is real. It is relentless. It is right. It is ready. But finally, we need to say that the wrath of God is not redemptive. It's not redemptive. Sometimes we may think to ourselves that when it all finally comes down, When the earth begins to shake and the stars begin to fall, then people will finally come to their senses, and then people will come to Christ, and then people will repent. But we saw, as we looked at the Great Tribulation already, that that's not necessarily the paradigm. Let me read to you again from chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. After the trumpets had blown and the these remedial plagues had been poured out. We read, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Even during that period of remedial judgment, The general tenor of people is, I'm not going to repent. And that same hardness of heart is even more emphatic here in chapter 16 as we read about God's final judgments. Look at verse 9. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power of these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Verse 11. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. And then verse 21. Huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. We're not given even one hint in this chapter that anybody turns to God. They all as we read in Romans 3, have turned aside. There's none of them who's righteous. There's none of them who seeks God. They all together have become useless, and they will not repent. That seems to be the end times pattern. Men do not repent toward God. They blaspheme him instead. And again, it's the book of Exodus repeated all over again, isn't it? It's Pharaoh's hardness of heart repeated all over again, isn't it? How many times would you have thought, just reading through the book of Exodus, that Pharaoh would finally come to his senses, that he'd finally tuck his tail between his legs, he'd finally bow his knees after all these plagues, and he would finally repent and let the people go? How many times does it look like he's just at the cusp of doing that? And every time, he hardens his heart. And what we're being told here in Revelation is that the men of those days will be like Pharaoh himself. It will be this way in the great and terrible day of the Lord. It won't be a day of salvation. It will be a day of unmitigated wrath where they will blaspheme God, verse 11, and will not repent of their deeds. Now, let me say a couple of things regarding that. First of all, if they won't repent in those last days, then we better get the good news to them now, hadn't we? We better get the good news to them while perhaps hearts are still soft. But let me also read that verse 11 again to you. They did not repent of their deeds. And before we close, let me remind you that the people about whom that is written were ordinary people. This chapter and these plagues are not just about murderers and rapists, but they're about all mankind who refuses to bow the knee to God. This chapter is about our neighbors and our co-workers and the people who sell us groceries. These horrible plagues are not just reserved for serial killers and for child molesters. They are reserved for all sorts of people who simply refuse to repent of their deeds and to give God glory. Their faces, if we could see them in Revelation 16, would look a lot like ours. Just average people in Cincinnati, average people in Europe, average people in Africa who will not repent. They look like us. And that prompts me to ask tonight, before we finish, if there's anyone in this room who's harboring unrepentant sin yourself. This chapter is a warning to us all. Anyone who's drifting tonight, anyone who's on a slippery slope tonight, and you know that you're not where you need to be, but you you won't repent so as to give glory to God. Anyone in this room tonight who's been getting angry lately, like these people here, because someone's putting their finger on some habit of sin in your life. If Revelation 16 is about ordinary people, it could be about you, and it could be about me. And so I plead with you, don't harden your heart. Don't become like Pharaoh. Don't become like these people. A day is coming when the universal posture on planet earth will indeed be they did not repent. But it needn't be that way for you today. You and I are living, aren't we, in a day of grace. We are living in the time of God's mercy, not his wrath. The lights may go out on planet earth any day now. But they're still on tonight. And so while it's still today, let's heed God's warnings in this chapter and not go down the road of hard-heartedness ourselves. Let it never be said of any one of us, they did not repent so as to give glory to God.